welcome to the Giving Voice to Depression podcast, produced in partnership with the A.B. Corcor Foundation for Mental Health. I'm Terry, the creator and co-host of this podcast. I've lived with depression most of my life, and I know how easy it can be to feel all alone in the experience. I'm not alone, and you aren't either. And I'm Dr. Anita Sands, a licensed clinical psychologist and life coach with a number of my own diagnoses, all of which bring a certain amount of anxiety and depression along with them. There is great power in shared experiences. We share our own as we engage in intimate and candid conversations with our weekly guests, exploring different perspectives on and experiences with depression. We keep it real because depression is real. We keep it hopeful because there truly is hope in spite of what depression tells you. Hello, Anita. Hi, Terry. As with most illnesses, there are risk factors for depression. The National Institute of Mental Health lists these. Personal or family history of depression, major life changes, trauma or stress, and certain physical illnesses and medications. We suspect that many of you, like us, are thinking, check, check, check. (laughs) Today's guest, Emily Director, has really researched depression since being diagnosed with it. She understands it from that academic viewpoint and from the personal perspective of having had her life and her life goals drastically altered by it. Emily is one of those rare And we think amazing people who experiences a major challenge and yet maintains the perspective to realize that there are many others who are in the same dangerously leaky boat and sets out to find and create ways to make living with it a little bit easier and safer. We'll be featuring Emily in both this and next week's episodes. Today, we'll hear about how her mental health journey began And next week, we'll focus on where it has brought her and the really helpful online resources that she's created for people with depression. Here now is Emily Director giving her voice to depression. Emily is a 28-year-old Rhode Island native who says she's always been very academic very much into like doing the best I possibly could in school and I was like I don't even know like it was just a thing that I did ever since I can remember um so I worked very hard at school so also did a lot of singing and other extracurriculars and all that stuff and made it my goal to get into an Ivy League school. I thought that was kind of like the pinnacle of success and it is by some people's standards. Emily ended up achieving that goal But rather than a dream come true, starting college was an absolute nightmare for her. I found myself just lost in the culture at Brown. I just didn't feel like I fit in. And I just, I don't know how to explain it. It was just a very, very deep sense of loneliness, a deep sense of not belonging. And just, and I would just be crying constantly. And I had no idea what was wrong with me. Um... And then finally ended up taking myself, I don't even actually remember too what too much. I must have been at the doctor and then we kind of discussed what I was going through and I was, I was put on an um, antidepressant at that time. That experience came as somewhat of a surprise to Emily, 
even though she knew mental illnesses ran in her family. I had thought I was kind of quote-unquote immune from. So in my family, there's something that I lovingly call the director curse, um, which is that most people in my family have some form of mental illness um, and pretty serious mental illness, um, pretty severe bipolar disorder or borderline personality disorder, a mix of the two. Um, kind of grew up in that space and thought, wow, like I've made it out. <laughs> I've made it out without dealing with this. When it became painfully clear that she had not avoided it, Emily addressed her depression on many levels. She sought professional help, went on meds, and transferred to a different university, leaving the environment she believed was contributing to her depression. And then I switched schools. I went to the University of Pennsylvania, and it's one of those like rare stories where like you like go on the medication and like all is well. Like I just loved Penn, and I got involved heavily in all things mental health related. Um, because the idea of well-being and wellness was something that was fascinating to me because I grew up in such a space where wellness was a thing that never really um, was a, was achieved, if you can call it achieved. I wouldn't, I don't know if wellness is ever really achieved. I think it's always a process. But anyway, after my first experience with depression, I realized that there was a lot of people out there that like that may have, you know, they're kind of, I used to call them like the quote unquote walking wounded where they had symptoms of some sort of mental health problem, but they didn't know that it was the case. And that was really prevalent, I think, in really high achieving communities where you're, you know, you're just pushed and pushed to work harder and harder and pushed to work through your pain. To try to spare other students the despair she experienced, Emily worked with the counseling and psychological services at her new school to create both a mental health screening tool that provides personalized recommendations for student care and the university's first peer counseling program for students. And also have a space to just like feel less alone in your experience. I learned a lot from my experience at Brown and was like, I felt so lonely. I think environment plays such a huge role in mental health. So, you know, like I think Brown wasn't a a good fit for me environmentally. And I think that initiated and exacerbated what ended up happening with me or I was just like completely miserable all the time. In the decades since then, Emily has learned the misery of depression is not a one-size-fits-all experience. Depression symptoms can not only vary between people, but between episodes the same person has there's anything I've learned from my many years of experiencing depression it's like that there's such a spectrum of illness with that mental illness and it's not some sort of concrete type of thing that the DSM tries to make it out to be my first experience with depression was more like it was sadness it was loneliness um but it wasn't a I could still get stuff done. It was it was harder for me to get stuff done, but I was still like achieving a lot and um it was just more of like a what's what's wrong with me? I was very like kind of questioning like what is happening to me. So your experience of depression now is different than it was when you were at Brown. Yeah, so my experience of depression now is is very different and I think um like I was saying, it's much deeper and much more entrenched, and it's been 
a long haul for me and I'm just kind of hopefully starting to get on a path of I like to say like healing instead of uh, to recovery as if it's some like pinnacle um I try to avoid the pinnacle you know mindset like I had to understand why Emily's depression is worse now than it was, she provides some context, which again reminds us that major life changes, traumas, and stressors are risk factors. My ultimate goal in my whole life was to go to medical school, actually. And so I ended up going um, to medical school at Brown again. <laughs> I don't know why. Um for two years, I went to medical school, and that's when the depression hit me hard. And I say hard as in just very dark, um, you know, I don't know how, just very dark thoughts, um, suicidal, um, and really, really, really ill in the sense that I could still, again, I could still get the work done. Um, but I was just struggling, um, to get, do basic tasks in my house, um, things like that. And it came to a point where it became, it was so, um, I was just getting like panicky and, and just so miserable. Emily says she was so miserable and impaired that she decided to take a break from her studies. I was supposed to take a year off from Brown, um, and which ended up being um, the last time I, I was a medical student. I ended up leaving Brown. And that was a huge deal for me because that was a, a huge identity crisis. A huge identity crisis because from the beginning I wanted to be a doctor since I was like eight years old. And so that really put me in an extremely deep, dark place. Uh, led me ultimately to my first hospitalization, first of many. Um, I ended up getting um, ECT, many treatments of that. Um, my Because I had taken so many different types of medications that didn't work. It was a very hopeless, hopeless time for me. To the extent that I couldn't, I wasn't. I was basically bedbound for about five months, and um, really couldn't do much at all. Couldn't function. Um, so I went from this person who was going to be a doctor, which is, you know, like everyone reveres the doctor, and um, I went from that to a person who was bedbound, getting ECT, getting hospitalized, you know, one to three times a year. And really struggling. Um, and I tried every treatment and nothing worked. And it was it was absolutely devastating. How'd you get out of that? Uh, well, I wouldn't say I'm like totally like super out of that per se. Um, I've thankfully found a fantastic therapist who recognize that I also have PTSD in addition to depression, which has been extremely helpful for me. Another extremely helpful thing Emily learned from her therapist is something that, frankly, we wish was taught to all of us as children. So we grow up with a healthier, more accepting and realistic understanding of the spectrum of human emotions. I kind of grew up thinking that, you know, you have positive emotions and negative emotions and negative emotions are things to be avoided. They're not good. They're negative. 
But of course, they can't be avoided. And because of their inevitability, Emily says they shouldn't be feared. And so I've really tried to just understand that, like, sadness is something that I can breathe through, that I can allow myself to experience, and that ultimately... I I will be okay if I can just get through that moment of like extreme sadness, for instance, because if you actually read the literature on emotions and like the biological reaction to emotions, emotions biologically are only felt within the body for 90 seconds. (laughs) It's all of the um, kind of cognitive part pieces of it that let make it last and spiral. So if you can kind of like, look into your body, feel your reaction, let yourself feel the sadness or whatever unwanted emotion and kind of get through that emotion, it can alleviate a lot of suffering. That's how I found it. I've also found a medication that has helped me. And then also um, the work that I'm doing currently with folks with depression has been very helpful. I think it's fascinating the concept of sort of allowing the shitty feelings as opposed to fighting them because the thinking about it just makes it last longer than the actual feeling it. And that has helped you deal with depression? It's helped me a lot. It's a, it's a skill to be worked on, but it's, it's changed my viewpoint from, I think a lot of what I was feeling and what I do feel when I'm depressed is, I'll be feeling really, really upset and just sad. And then I'll be thinking to myself, I shouldn't be feeling this way. Like, I shouldn't be feeling sad. Like, sadness is a bad thing. Like, and then I start panicking over the sadness. You know, like, oh, God, like, I, I can't believe I'm feeling sad. Like, I'm going to be sad forever. Like, da 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 um, You know, and so it's this, it's rec- one, it's recognizing this cognitive piece of things. And it's also just being able to kind of zone in on your emotion and say, Instead, I say, try to say to myself, you know, I am, you know, naming the emotion, I'm feeling sad, I'm feeling whatever, I'm feeling overwhelmed. And this makes sense, because I lost something important to me. And this is how it feels in my body. And that has really helped me to not panic so much over over feeling sadness, over feeling these quote unquote negative emotions, and understanding that emotions have a function. Like, I could be sad because I'm feeling really lonely. And, like, maybe that's telling me that I need to, you know, be around people or socialize or something like that. How often now would you describe yourself as depressed, as having symptoms? Um, that's a really good question. I think, you know, it's episodic for a lot of folks, and that's great. Um, and unfortunately for me, I think it's something that I just, I have to live with. And it waxes and wanes, basically. So I I see it as something that's kind of always with me and something I always have to be conscious of and grapple with. But there are times when it gets worse, um, when, you know, I feel completely kind of incapacitated. And then there are times when, you know, I am able to get work done and I'm, I'm able to feel joy, honestly. Like, that's a big, huge thing for me is, like, I've finally started to be able to feel joy after four years of just, like, complete numbness. Tell me about that. When you are conscious of the fact that you're experiencing joy, what does that feel like? Is there a relief in there, too? A relief, but it's also a feeling of, like, 
just fear a little bit, like waiting for the other shoe to drop because it's been just so many times where I've unfortunately, you know, felt okay and then relapsed like pretty quickly thereafter. Um, I think it's also scary when you start to feel a little bit better because you've been surrounded or at least I've been fortunate to be surrounded by support. And so for me, when I start feeling better, I get a little bit wary. I'm like, am I going to lose the support that I have had, like in terms of my therapist and people like that, that I've had helping me throughout this whole thing? And why would you lose your therapist if you were better, if you were healthier? Yeah, it's a good question. And not one that's necessarily rational. But I think that's something that a lot of people don't want to acknowledge when they start to feel better or when like, things start lifting a little bit is like, maybe I don't want to get better because you know, maybe, you know, my therapist like won't listen to me as much or won't be there for me as much or something like that. Yeah. And and I, I just yeah, I hope that people listening know that or, or believe or at least hold open the possibility that even when they're feeling well, they can be supported. Oh, absolutely. Oh, I, I 100% believe that. It's just a matter of, you know, the feeling, I think, and the fear. And I think that's something to acknowledge and something to, like, maybe say to your therapist, you know, bring up with them. In closing, we asked Emily if there was anything else she wanted to add. And she circled back to the spectrum idea that there can be someone with depression who is super high-functioning, but inside they're miserable and joyless and numb. And there are also people who are literally debilitated by the illness. Emily shared there was a time she was so desperate, she literally prayed that her symptoms were actually the result of a brain tumor, because then there was the possibility it could be removed and she'd be okay. It's like something that we all know, like, but we don't acknowledge enough, like getting out of bed and, you know, going outside for a walk. It can be just difficult. I mean, going and making yourself a meal can be difficult. Doing the quote unquote basic or fundamental things of your life are impaired in almost every way. And I think the largeness, the the greatness of that is underplayed a lot and not appreciated enough when it comes to folks that have, you know, moderate to severe illness. Terry, you know, I so get where she's coming from. When I have a chronic fatigue relapse with no energy and no way to really get very much more energy and trying to get through what needs to be done during a day, it's just absolutely miserable. It is debilitating and it's miserable. And um, I want people to know that next week we will be talking about things that you can do to make the basics of your life easier. You know, getting nutrition, uh, taking care of yourself, hygiene, just trying to maintain your environment, doing the things that that might at least make it less miserable and maybe even help you, you know, to get out of that kind of a, um, a really, really bad state. And I love that the episode is like really in the grass. You know, mm-hmm. we're not saying like, it could be very helpful if you were to, you know, it's, it's really like, hey, if you can't get out of bed, but you need your body to not smell, here's a tip. 
You know, so we're really getting into it next week, yes. which is a great thing because sometimes you have to, you know, you can't like you're in it, you're in it and you can't always do what you could normally do. And, and that's sort of the whole point. That's the debilitating part of it. Right. But getting into the details will really, I think, be helpful for anyone who's struggling, but might even also enlighten, you know, people who don't realize how much of a struggle it is just to do the basics in, in a day, in a given day. Absolutely. Especially when, you know, you're in a, say, working from home situation and someone's wondering why you haven't had your camera on for the Zoom meeting if you were able to do the Zoom meeting or why you maybe haven't met a deadline. And it's like, if you understood that there is a hashtag celebrate the shower Mm -hmm. or cereal for dinner for a reason, um, you are right that that understanding could change a lot of things. Yeah. Um, One other point that Emily made is um, the importance of peer support. And that was something that she helped establish at the the University of Pennsylvania, where she was a student. Uh, We want to invite you to the Giving Voice to Depression Facebook community page, because there you will also find other people who live with depression, who live with suicidal thoughts, all those aspects of it um, can can weigh in and and support each other, which is really a lovely thing. There are more than 10,000 people there. So we invite you to join as well. Absolutely. I hope that you will, because, you know, dealing with anything that is chronic and miserable um, and has to be weighted out and you've got to do so many things to try to get better. It helps so much to know that you're not alone, that there are so many other people who know exactly how you're feeling and would not and do not judge you. And one other housekeeping thing, we have a recorder widget, I think it's called, on our website, givingvoicetodepression.com. So if you have a comment about this episode, any other episode, an idea for an episode, or if you just want to leave a general comment, you can go there, press record, I think you can go up to two minutes or something, and then we will get that and be able to contact you back or hear what your input is and uh, know it and implement it. So we'd be really grateful to hear from you. It's kind of hard when the conversation is one way. Absolutely. So next week, please tune in and listen to Emily talking about her website, serialfordinner.org, and all of the helpful information about how to manage and just kind of outlast depressive episodes. It's going to be, I think, just some real life helpful information. Agreed. See you then. Thanks, Anita. Thanks, Emily. We truly hope that our podcast brings a little more understanding, helps you better articulate and reflect on your own experience with depression, or better understand how to support someone else who is struggling. If this episode has been of comfort or value to you, know that there are hundreds of others like it in our archive, which you can easily find at our website, givingvoicetodepression.com. And remember, if you're struggling, speak up, even if it's hard. If someone else is struggling, take the time to listen. 